Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. I am privileged to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week two authors. We're going to speak with them one at a time because they contributed primarily the first and second parts of a new fantastic book uh, and because it works better with my recording technology. Uh, They are Natalie Baldwin and Kermit Hartsong and the book is Ukraine, Zbig's Grand Chessboard and How the West Was Checkmated. And this is not just one of the best but one of the most important books that I have seen in quite some time, and I highly recommend it. Uh, Natalie Baldwin uh, has a website as well. It is natalie.sbaldwin.com, and Natalie is N-A-T-Y-L-I-E. Uh, Natalie Baldwin, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Wonderful to have you on. The, the first part of this book really s- creates the context and sets the stage for recent badly understood and misrepresented events in the U- Ukraine. What should people know, first and foremost, to set the context in terms of, of U.S.-Russian relations leading up to, to recent events? That's a very good question. I, I know we can't cover everything, but uh, the, the yeah. most important points you would make? Well, I think the direction of relations, uh, U.S.-Russia relations in the post-Soviet period, last 25 years, a lot, of, a lot of Americans just simply don't really understand it very well, because I don't think it's been covered very well by the mainstream media, um, which contributes to this uh, misunderstanding of what's going on and the demonization of Vladimir Putin and uh, people thinking that uh, Russia is an aggressor and uh, that this all started because, you know, Putin was a bad guy and took over Russia and wanted to recreate the Soviet Union and things like that. I should probably start by saying that according to recent polling data, this came out within the last couple of weeks from the Levada Center in Russia, Putin is actually maintaining an 86% approval rating. And if you compare that to Obama, he has a 46% approval rating. And uh, President Poroshenko in Ukraine has a 17% approval rating. That's, and, that's uh, almost congressional level, 17%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we can talk more about Poroshenko later, but furthermore, 62% of Russians view Putin as the most trusted public figure. Uh, the person who came in second was at 29%. That was the defense minister. And despite the recession, 60% of Russians agree with the general direction of the country. This is the evil, aggressive, isolated, and demonized Russian president that Washington policymakers somehow thought by this point uh, would be alienated from Russians and and possibly be on the verge of being overthrown in a color revolution. (laughs) Does, Um, Does U.S. aggressiveness toward Russia actually increase Putin's popularity significantly? Well, I think, you know, this kind of goes to a basic psychological fact, you know, even if people are not totally happy with their leader, as soon as an outsider is perceived that an outsider is being aggressive to their country or to their leader, they're going to rally around. That's a common dynamic that you see when this kind of thing happens. And you have to keep in mind that over the course of Putin's presidency, and, you know, his popularity has, you know, waxed and waned a little bit, depending on what's going on. But at his lowest approval rating, he's never been below the 60s. You know, Russians think that Putin is overall uh, a good leader and that he is representing their interests. This just reflects, I think, these policies in Washington reflect a profound ignorance of Russian politics, culture, and mindset. 
this has been pointed out by other Russia analysts, but it deserves repeating. Um, you have to understand that Putin is a product of Russia, not the other way around. Uh, despite the characterizations of Western media and politicians that Putin is a dictator and an autocrat and Hitler and Stalin and everything else, he's really actually a moderate and a pragmatist. He has to try and balance out different interests and viewpoints in the Kremlin. Um, he does have a lot of power, but he he doesn't have you know he, he doesn't have the kind of power that some people make him out to have. And you have to also keep in mind that Russia has a thousand-year history of authoritarian rule, from the Tsars to the totalitarian Soviet system. And Russia's only 25 years out from under that. Um, it's a transitional society, not a full-fledged democracy yet, but it's more democratic than it's been in its history. So I think that the demonization of Putin, it's, it's not just a demonization of an individual, but it, it is that. But it's also a way of sidelining Russia's legitimate national interests, which, as I said, Putin represents very well. Um, He stated clearly and consistently throughout his presidency what Russia's interests are, um, and that is protecting Russia's sovereignty um, on two levels, uh, both from, you know, hostile entities, defense, and in terms of their economy. Now, in terms of defense, this is ingrained in the Russian psyche, and it's easy to understand if you know Russia's geography and history. Because Russia lacks natural barriers like oceans and mountain ranges, they've endured numerous invasions throughout their history from different directions. And in the 20th century, they were invaded twice by Germany. The second time in World War II, they suffered 27 million deaths. 19 million of those were civilians. And a third of their country was destroyed um, from beating back the Nazis. And these invasions from the West usually come through Ukraine geographically. So Ukraine, you can, you can start to see why Ukraine is a sensitive area. Um, now, when the end of the Cold War was negotiated, Gorbachev was understandably, with this history, hesitant to allow a reunified Germany. So James Baker, who was George Bush Sr.'s Secretary of State, he promised that NATO would not expand eastward. That was the deal in return for allowing German unification. And that's what Gorbachev was led to believe in these negotiations. Excuse me, negotiations. Now, his fateful error was in not demanding it in writing. So that's allowed this kind of plausible deniability later on. Now, NATO, since 1999, has expanded to include 12 new nations, including the Baltic countries, which are right on Russia's border. And NATO, which, you know, is controlled by the U.S., it's shown by its actions that it is a hostile alliance, um, NATO's territorial reach and its purpose has been expanded over the years, and it's been used against leaders who have an independent policy. Also, NATO, it was made clear that, you know, NATO was not going to allow Russia to become a member um, at the beginning of Putin's presidency. Uh, you know, he asked, you know, so, so when can we become a member of this? And it was, you know, it's been pretty much consistent over the years that, Russia was never going to become a member of the uh, alliance. And um, some analysts have acknowledged the fact that um, they could have just uh, dissolved NATO and created another alliance that would have, you know, taken into consideration Russia's interests and included Russia eventually, um, creating really a genuine pan-European security architecture, but that was never pursued. And, And Putin's made it very clear in the past, you know, for example, in meetings with Condoleezza Rice during the Bush administration, that Ukraine and NATO was a red line. 
and he explained why. He explained the potential for destabilization and a civil war because of the cultural and um, political differences that exist in the country. I mean, he basically predicted exactly what we're seeing now happening in Ukraine. And um, according to WikiLeaks table, there were meetings between Lavrov and uh, the ambassador during the Bush administration, Bill Burns, where these very same points were made. Now, in a separate but related issue of economic policy in terms of Russian sovereignty, um, in the 1990s, um, we saw Western advisors uh, go over and, and help uh, a few well-connected Russians come to economic power and they became the oligarchs, and um, they just basically, basically pillaged Russia's assets and resources. And uh, these oligarchs, uh, they were not created by Putin. They were created in the Yeltsin era with the help of Western advisors. Um, when Putin came to power, he actually brought the oligarchs to heal somewhat. Um, he made a deal with them. He said, look, you know, I know how you all made your money, and uh, if you want to keep your loot, you know, you got to do two things. you got to start paying taxes, and you got to stay out of politics. So, um, basically, you know, Putin took the fire sale sign down off Russia. You know, he made it clear that economic uh, deals from this point on had to be in Russia's interest. Russia had to be getting something out of this. It wasn't just going to be, you know... Uh, pillagers coming in here and, and, you know, making off with whatever they like and taking their money uh, out of Russia, putting it in foreign accounts like a lot of the oligarchs did. Um, and, you know, the elites in, in the West, particularly in Britain and the United States, have never really forgiven Putin for that. So those are the reasons why um, you see this demonization of Putin uh, by a certain segment of uh the elites and the media goes along with it. Well, well, how dare he? He sounds like Hitler. Um, I, I, with just a few minutes left uh, for this first part of the book, Natalie, I, I want to ask about one other issue that, that Putin has brought up himself, which is the United States pulling out of the ABM Treaty. I don't know if everyone in the United States knows what that means or when that happened uh, or what it looks like from Russia's point of view. Yeah, well, during the Bush administration, uh, you know, Putin started out kind of having, you know, pretty good relations with Bush in the very beginning. Um, and, and they, you know, it didn't take too long for it to kind of go sour um, because I think Putin realized at a certain point that he was, he was making all of these gestures to try and have a cooperative relationship with the United States, and, and they weren't reciprocated. And um, one of the one of the big slaps in the face that uh, Putin got during the Bush administration was um, uh, Bush unilaterally pulled out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty, and that was to uh, allow the uh, missile defense to be deployed in Eastern Europe. And that's clearly directed at Russia. I mean, it basically is telling Russia that, you know, we want to have a first strike capability. Um, and, and there was some... Uh, some people in Washington tried to say, well, no, this is really, really directed at Iran, and which, you know, was not taken seriously. You know, Iran doesn't even have a nuclear bomb right now, and, and uh, you know, it wouldn't make sense to place them in Eastern Europe if, if they're directed at Iran. I mean, it was clearly this was directed against Russia. So it was just, it was more hostility um, toward Russia's interests, uh, toward Russia's security interests. 
and you know it was recognized clearly as such in Moscow. Why, uh, just with a, a minute or two left, why, why put uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski's name in the title of this book? What does he mean and what does he symbolize? Well, actually, um, Kermit um, came up with the title of the book. <laughs> um, but, you know, Brzezinski, I like to, I like to put it this way. Um, Brzezinski and the neocons, um, they don't agree on everything but they do have a couple of very key things in common in their thinking. They're both unabashed imperialists. And the other thing that unites them is they both have a pathological hatred of Russia for kind of similar but different reasons. Um, Brzezinski uh, is of Polish descent, and um, he, uh, you know, he, he hates Russia because of, you know, the fact that Poland uh, has historically been subjugated uh, by Russia um, at certain points in history. And um, he came up with uh, a strategy outlined in a book he published called uh, The Grand Chessboard, um, where um, he talks about, uh, it's basically uh, an idea about keeping Russia uh, from having power uh, in Eurasia and um, from forming a natural alliance with Europe. And Kermit can probably speak a little more to this um, in his section. Per- perfect segue. Uh, let's turn to Kermit Hartsong. Uh, Natalie Baldwin, thank you uh, for your contribution here to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. It is now my great pleasure to welcome onto Talk Nation Radio the other co-author of Ukraine's Big's Grand Chessboard and How the West Was Checkmated, Kermit Hartsong. Kermit, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Hi, David. Thank you for having me on. Uh, great to have you on. Uh, we were just speaking with your co-author, Natalie Baldwin, and we've sort of arrived at uh, at this question of how the the West was checkmated. Um, and, and we've sort of covered a, a little bit of the context, but fill us in, in, in reality, rather than corporate media sure. mythology, what, what happened in Ukraine in, in, back 10 years ago, and, and then just last year? Uh, what has been the West's role? What's, what's going on in reality? Well, what's going on, I guess, for the past 10 years has been a concerted effort on the part of the West to prime Ukraine for what is called a color revolution. So the $5 billion that Newland refers to is that priming process. Uh, and which resulted in the coup uh, in February. Um, so the coup happened as a result of Newlands and Pyatt's uh, interference in the, the sovereign affairs of Ukraine. Yukonovich um, is forced out uh, as a result of the coup. Uh, and if I may, we fast forward to all the promises, through all the promises that were made to the Maidan in terms of EU integration, in terms of NATO, which were pipe dreams sold to them, and we have a different situation on the ground. What's happening in Ukraine now, at this time, is Minsk II has basically been disintegrated. It is disintegrated, and war has returned to Ukraine. NATO appears to be all in with American, British, and Polish troops, and I have no doubt there are other troops in Ukraine right on Russia's doorsteps. Uh, And so the provocation uh, from 10 years ago of uh, Newland spending $5 billion to date, has continued to ratchet up. So Western provocation continues across the region. When you say Newland, uh, this is Victoria Newland Assistance. Victoria. 
I'm sorry? Yes. Yes. Uh, Assistant U.S. Secretary of State, is that right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Okay, so what is actually going on right now, the big picture, is that you have the U.S. ostensibly playing chicken simultaneously with a nuclear-armed Russia and a nuclear-armed China. Um, This dramatically raises stakes, of course, and represents a catastrophic danger to the world. And this is madness. Um, To give you an example, think former Warsaw Pact countries staging provocations in Mexico and Canada and ramping heavy weapons trips and flying strategic bomber drills. Our press and government would be apoplectic with such an event transcurring. But that Western leaders somehow don't understand the consequences in reverse, don't care, that they're just following orders, represents incompetence, uh, really gross negligence, and Nuremberg-type crimes, because people are dying uh, in eastern Ukraine. To date, I think it's 6,400 people that have died. So what this represents in a snapshot is the potential uh, for nuclear annihilation. And I think as the West is continually checkmated, and I'll get to that, um, I think we see the probability for that rise. Now, how has the situation backfired uh, for the West? Well, first let us consider what the West sought via the Ukrainian coup, and I think the most important thing was control. Some of the control points uh, were control of Europe as a vassal state, uh, control of Europe's relationship both economically and politically with Russia, control of the oil-gas concessions going into Europe, uh, control of Russia's geostrategic and geopolitical destinies, and ostensibly China's as well. Um, and control of Eastern Europe, and this is an irony of ironies, in particular for strategic military assets, basically ABM installations that could take down Russian ICBMs on ascent with a high degree of accuracy. But the Eastern Ukraine, as you well know, is, uh, is out of their hands and will be out of their hands, I imagine, for the duration. And all of this, of course, is predicated on the control of the petrodollar over world financial transactions. So these are the things that they sought, and one of the gifts would be a Ukraine primed and ready to be destroyed and plundered via what Naomi Klein, Naomi Klein excuse me, labels the shock doctrine. So gold, farmland, minerals, everything not tied down, and many things tied down. So carte blanche to steal is what NATO, what the U.S. went in. However, almost everything that the U.S. sought via its Ukrainian gamut has been checkmated or will soon be checkmated. One clear exception of that is Ukraine's goal, which is quickly stolen by our government and now sits in the Fed, some government storage facility, or alone, some would say, at Fort Knox. So these are the things that they sought, and of those, many of them have already been checkmated, and others will soon be checkmated. So what are... Go ahead, I'm sorry. And, and, and not just blocked, but, uh, but backfired in some sense. This has been counterproductive, is your argument. How so? Absolutely. Well, let's talk to the historic initiatives to keep Russia and China apart. I mean, Nixon and Kissinger understanding that these two players combined is a major threat to the West. So what happens? Uh, And what the major checkmate is on this uh, debacle for the U.S. and the West is Russian-Chinese hyper detente. The U.S.-inspired grand chessboard coup has inadvertently matched Russia, the country with the largest supply of nuclear missiles in the world, which includes 5,000 battle superior weapons technology, 
an incredible natural resources with China, the country that has arguably the largest GDP, tremendous capital reserves, and a manufacturing infrastructure that will soon be, if it isn't already, second to none. This is a catastrophic fail. Uh, two of the largest Eurasian players are best friends for life as a direct result of the Ukrainian coup. Uh, second, third, and fourth are banking, economics, and finance. So prior to the U.S. and the EU's Ukrainian gambit, Western banks, rating agencies, and the SWIFT network had no competitors. This is no longer the case. To date, alternative banks uh, were witnessing the rise, basically, of alternative worldwide banks, uh, intent on challenging the IMF, the World Bank, Wall Street, the City of London, intent on challenging their hegemony. The two banks of note are the BRICS Bank and the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which are already starting to undercut their Western counterparts, and they're drawing in numerous unaligned nations and also Western nations, uh, much to the chagrin of Washington. Um, so that's one of the areas, banking. The second is rating agencies. As a direct result of Russia's very political credit downturn, itself an attack against Russia, Russia and Chinese credit agencies uh, will be challenging the status quo, the Moody's, the Standard and Poor's, and the Fitch. And finally, one another part of that is the Russian-Chinese SWIFT system. When the U.K. threatened to take Russia off the SWIFT system, Russia and China decided it was time to move on. So this is the classic case of threatening uh, and an empty threat, but that empty threat basically forces the people on the other side to move, and this is exactly what they have done. So right now we have a competing uh, SWIFT system with no risk of Russia or China being cut off from the West. Uh, add to that the fact that there is a $40 billion uh, New Silk Road uh, initiative, which seeks, to, which seeks to integrate Eurasia in a win-win free trade zone. And this, of course, is entirely anathema to the West, whose modus operandi has been win-lose in the form of extortion, bribery, threat mass murder, otherwise referred to as war and sanctions, another form of warfare. So these are some of the big issues. These are some of the checkmates that are forming nicely for Russia uh, across the board. Some of the other checks uh, that are forming into checkmates would, of course, be the hairline fractures that are now running through political and economic spheres of the EU. One gets the feeling that there is a slow realization in Europe that the U.S. holds nothing for them except the war, orders, benign subjugation, and a big stick should they get out of line. Uh, some of the other checks uh, that are waiting to form is the petrodollar. The petrodollar is fast fading, and as larger and larger transactions are taking place in currencies other than the dollar, and as other countries' reserves are being cleared of dollars, uh, this represents a world change with regard to currency, with regard to uh, what will be the functioning currency. Uh, so, yeah. so there's a d disaster here for the West, uh, but just there. to play devil's advocate slash corporate media consumer for a minute, uh, sure. did, did the West start this? I mean, didn't didn't Russia attack and invade and steal Crimea? Didn't Russia invade Ukraine? I mean, almost on a monthly basis, they were newly <laughs> invading Ukraine for a while there. And didn't they shoot down an airplane? I, I mean, where does the blame <laughs> lie here? Uh, the answer to each of those questions is no, and there is sufficient documentation on each of those and a lack of documentation on the West uh, that has brought these charges. And 
Does a country invade month after month, or does it just invade one month and stay there? I mean, I think that brings ridicule to the fact that Russia is invading every month, uh, based on the, the talking uh, person of the day. So what we have seen, and I, what we have seen is Western uh, media challenge, challenged successfully by alternative media, which is yourself, alternative state media, such as RT and Press TV and China's TV, and it hasn't hit home yet um, that they can no longer uh, provide stories, propaganda that will not be checked out or will not have a counter source to it. So people are becoming, I believe, at least in other parts of the world, more informed on what's actually happening. So... There, I don't know if that answers. Yeah, that there was a there was a, a, a amendment passed in the U.S. House of Representatives not too long ago, uh, forbidding the uh, arming and training of neo Nazis in Ukraine. The Azov, absolutely. Uh, and, and what in the world do neo Nazis have to do with uh, with this operation of fending off the the new Nazi, which is of course uh, Vladimir Putin? <laughs> which is a good question. <laughs> Um, you know, it is interesting that this Maidan uh, was really orchestrated uh, by the U.S., but then the shock troops for it were the various Nazi organizations. Suloda, um, which is a long-standing Nazi organization, uh, National so- Social Nationalist Party, which is a direct uh, spinoff of um, Hitler's National Socialist Party. So you have neo-Nazis died in the world. They salute uh, the Nazis of World War II. They are in, I would say, enraptured with uh, Hitler. And then the right sector, which has become the umbrella for some of the uh, military uh, neo-Nazi brigades. So you basically have these two segments um, controlling a good part of Ukraine. And when the first election uh, happened, you had six or seven uh, neo-Nazis in position of power uh, in the military, uh, in the uh, interior, uh, education. I mean, so to say that there are no Nazis in this uh, administration is, is foolish in the extreme, at the least. Um, and right now, that is the battle. The fact that the Azov Battalion uh, has been recognized, I think, is is directly related to the fact that alternative media has been speaking this up and will not let it quiet down, uh, despite the fact that the media organizations refuse to see the neo-Nazi elephants in the room. Um, so that, that really brings us to the point that Western propaganda is failing, um, it, and it's being successfully challenged by media, media uh, alternative, and, like I said, state media. Um, and the fact that Kerry... Uh, spoke to this, I think, was not only a huge mistake on his, but also uh, spoke truth to the fact that they are under uh, media attack. You know, the rest of the world is not going to take this anymore. So Kerry speaks about RT. He brings RT to the attention of millions of Americans that had probably never heard of it. Uh, And so the basket is being shaken up, if you will. But um, as a result of... 
ahead. It, it's it's good grounds for encouragement. Uh, there is the hope there that U.S. propaganda will fail before the human species' uh, wisdom and ability to avoid nuclear apocalypse fails. Uh, this is a an incredibly important book, incredibly well done. It is called Ukraine: Zbig's Grand Chessboard and How the West Was Checkmated by Natalie Baldwin. And we've just been speaking with co-author Kermit Hartsong. Kermit, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for having us both. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.